we are going to dip our toe back into the first part of Matthew 21 and then quickly move on. Um, let me read Matthew 21, 1 through 11. And when they had approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied there and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. This took place in order that what was spoken through the prophet would be fulfilled, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, lowly and mounted on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a pack animal. And the disciples went and did just as Jesus had instructed them, and brought the donkey and the colt, and laid their garments on them, and he sat on the garments. And most of the crowd spread their garments in the road, and others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them in the road. And the crowds going ahead of him and those who followed were crying out, saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when they had entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirred, saying, Who is this? And the crowds were saying, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. There are passages of scripture that are so familiar to us <coughs> that we can almost recite them in our sleep. Um, this year is uh, my 42nd year of, in pastoral ministry in, in August. Uh, will be my actually 40th year. Um, and so this is the, where did I get that? This is 41st, uh, 2013, right? 2023. So this is 40 years, wait. No, 30 years. Good grief. My math is bad this week. Okay, I, see, when I have a trip coming up, I, I get trip mind is what Linda says. So 30 years of ministry in August, this is the 29th Palm Sunday that I've preached. And most of those, those have been in Matthew 21, Mark 11, or Luke 19. The vast majority of those, in fact, as far as I remember, all of those have been in those texts. Um, and that's appropriate. The Bible's not made of clay. We can't simply form it into anything that we want it to be. But at the same time, uh, knowing my years of, of dealing with that, knowing that all of you, including the children, have heard this year after year, I just wanted to dive deeper. I wanted to probe deeper into Matthew's words, and especially the fulfillment of Scripture. In verses 4 and 5, he says, This took place in order to, to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Uh, Matthew quotes from two Old Testament prophets. He quotes from Isaiah and from Zechariah. Uh, the, the, the book of Isaiah is the longest Old Testament prophet. It's called one of the major prophets. Zechariah is one of the minor prophets. That has nothing to do with the importance of the prophets. It has everything to do with the size of the book. Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel were long enough that they often comprised their own scrolls, where the minor prophets were often either contained by themselves or sometimes uh, put in at the end of one of the other prophets in the, in the Jewish Old Testament. 
Uh, Isaiah 1 through 39 deals primarily with God's judgment on Judah, and Isaiah 40 to 66 deals primarily with God's restoration of Judah and the coming of the Messiah. All of Zechariah deals with the restoration of fallen Israel by the mercy of God, and most of Zechariah has not yet been fulfilled. Most of what Zechariah has to say is end times material. So I want to spend some time looking at these two chapters, Isaiah 62 and then Zechariah 9. Isaiah 62 begins with a a statement of, of Yahweh's deep commitment to his people voiced by Isaiah. For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. For Jerusalem's sake, I will not keep quiet until her righteousness goes forth like brightness and her salvation like a torch that is burning. Then he says in verse 2, this, this is how we know that God has answered this prayer. The nations will see your righteousness and all kings your glory. And you will be called by a new name which the mouth of Yahweh will designate. He says, you will also be a crown of glory in the hand of Yahweh and a turban of royalty in the hand of your God. And this speaks of the time when judgment is accomplished and the restoration has been accomplished. It says in verse 4, it will no longer be said to you forsaken, nor to to your land will it any longer be said desolate, but you will be called Hephzibah, my delight is in her. And your land will be called Beulah, married. For Yahweh takes pleasure in you. And to him your land will be married. For as a young man marries a virgin, so your sons will marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so your God will rejoice over you. At the time that Isaiah is writing, the judgment of Judah has not yet taken place. The judgment of Israel, I don't think, has taken place. The judgment of Israel, the northern kingdom, is right on the verge of happening, and the judgment of Judah is still a hundred years away. Nevertheless, those judgments are going to take place. But in spite of that, God is not done with Israel. And he says, you will be restored, and you will be restored in such a way that you will be called righteous. The kings will see your righteousness, your glory. And you'll be called by a new name, which the mouth of Yahweh will designate. What's that new name? We don't know. That hasn't been given yet. Israel is still in a state of under under in a state of being under the judgment of God. But when she's perfectly restored, she'll be a crown of glory and a turban, a turban of royalty, for Yahweh. God will be justified or glorified by the restoration and justification of His people. This doesn't happen coincidentally. It just doesn't take place at some point in the future just because. Verse 6 says, On your walls, O Jerusalem, now Yahweh is speaking, apparently, On your walls, O Jerusalem, I have appointed watchmen. All day and all night they will never keep silent. You who remind Yahweh, take no rest for yourselves, and give him no rest until he establishes and sets Jerusalem as a praise in the earth. Watchmen were sentries, they were guards, they were posted on city walls, especially at night. Their job was to look out past the city, outside of the city, and make sure things were safe and secure. (coughs) A 
few hundred years ago, perhaps, they would call out 10 o'clock and all is well. They weren't calling out the time in the ancient world, but they were calling out all is well. In a time without radios, without televisions, without any way of getting in contact with somebody, the only way for the captains to know that the city was secure is if the watchmen periodically call out all is quiet, all is well. The countryside is peaceful. The city is secure. <coughs> and then they could go to the king. They could go to the princes overseeing the security of the city and say, hey, all is well. The reports are in. These watchmen in Isaiah, though, are not watching out over the city. They are those who are given a position of prayer before God. And they are to call out to God for the restoration of Israel. All day and all night they will never keep silent. You who remind Yahweh, speaking of prayer, take no rest for yourselves and give him no rest until he answers this prayer. The Lord is going to answer this prayer. Give him no rest until he establishes and sets Jerusalem as a praise in the earth. I, I do okay with, with Bible study. I do okay with worship and with those other things. Prayer has always been the thing that's confused me because God is sovereign. Nobody can change his will. And so I've wrestled with prayer, in all honesty. And I've read some things the past week that have, that have kind of given me a better understanding, I think, which sounds silly, but they have. The, one of the comparisons made was God is going to save his people. He won't save to, fail to save his people. He won't leave one of his people behind. And yet he saves them through the preaching of the gospel. He's going to save them, but he saves them through means. God is going to achieve his will, but he achieves his will through the means of his people being in prayer. So there's an encouragement to pray. The other thing that, that really struck me toward the end of the week was the more time I spend in the word, studying and contemplating, the more my heart is driven to respond in prayer. If you get up in this might not be the case for you. Maybe you can get up first thing in the morning and launch into prayer. I can't. When I do, it's, it's just, I don't know what I'm doing here. But when I go into his word and I spend a few minutes in study and contemplation, or, or 20 minutes or 30 minutes, eventually what I'm reading and contemplating and understanding drives me to respond to him in prayer. And so if you have a hard time motivating prayer, maybe don't start by motivating prayer maybe motivate time in the word to understand who he is and what his promises are now let's think about these promises after 70 years of captivity jews were given permission to return to jerusalem and rebuild the temple and eventually the city walls but they were never independent they were under the thumb of assyria alexander the great uh, conquered the assyrians and uh there was a time when there was a, a general oversight, self-rule in Israel, but very short. Um, the Greeks pretty quickly uh, flexed their muscles. A few hundred years after the return, the Maccabees, the brothers, threw out the Greeks because Antiochus Epiphanes violated the temple. They had possession of the, the city and the temple for a brief time until Rome conquered Greece. And then Rome took over. And from that point until 70 AD when the city was destroyed, Israel was under the thumb of somebody. 
they had a few moments of, of self-reliance, but you couldn't call that peace, and you couldn't call that the kind of restoration that's described here. This is the promise that God makes. Verse 8, Yahweh has sworn by his right hand and by his strong arm, I will never again give your grain as food for your enemies, nor will foreigners drink your new wine for which you have labored, but those who collect it will eat it and praise Yahweh, and those who gather it will drink it in the courts of my sanctuary. That has not yet happened. Israel continues to be overrun. They came back into existence in 1948, which by itself was a remarkable thing. That, that was a providence of God. But they've not been independent. When they came into, into existence, they still had to deal with the British and the Americans and the Europeans and the Palestinians. And they continue to have to do that today. Jerusalem continues to be trampled underfoot by Muslims. That's simply the case. And much of Israel is in the control, virtually the possession of the Palestinian organizations. Well, Yahweh promises that the day is coming when he will never again judge Israel by giving her over to her enemies, but rather Israel will become a source of praise of God to all the nations. That has not yet happened. But it will And when it happens, verse 10 says, here's the command, go through, go through the gates. Clear the way for the people, singular. Build up, build up the highway, remove the stones, raise up a standard over the peoples, peoples plural. So build up, or go through, go through the gates, you've got repetition. Hebrew uses repetition for the sake of emphasis. We have words that are called superlatives, like better and best. Hebrew doesn't have that. It achieves that by repetition. So rather than Isaiah 6 saying uh, Yahweh is the holiest of all, it says holy, holy, holy. And that's the intention of that, is to magnify and emphasize the holiness of God. So we have in the first part of verse 10 uh, an exhortation to the people. Go through, go through the gates. Clear the way for the people. Let the people of Israel back into the city, which is the, 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 the crown in the hands of God. And then a statement made for Gentiles. Build up, build up the highway, which is not traveled by the Jews. It's traveled by Gentiles. Remove the stones. Raise up a standard over the peoples, plural, the nations, the Gentiles. Now, a standard is a banner. It's a, it's a flag, a signal flag that has a message, that communicates a message. What's the message? Verse 11, Behold, Yahweh has announced to the end of the earth, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your salvation comes. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. And that's what we see fulfilled in Matthew 21. That exact thing. Your salvation comes. His reward is with him. His recompense is before him. Reward for righteousness, the recompense for wickedness. He comes as a savior. Jesus will come again as a judge. And they will call them the holy people, the redeemed of Yahweh. And you, Jerusalem, will be called sought out, a city not forsaken. The them in verse 12 is both Jews and Gentiles, those, all of those who are part of the covenant with Abraham through Christ. And Jerusalem itself, I find this to be very interesting, 
is not called the city who seeks, but the city who is sought. There's never been a time when Israel has sought Christ. Never. Not yet. That won't happen by accident. It won't happen on their own. Zechariah 9 begins with a a description of God's judgment of the region of Syria. There are a number of places and cities that are named there. Hadrach, which is a region north of Damascus, the city of Damascus, Hamath, which is another region there, Tyre and Sidon, which are over on the coast. These are all the the areas under the judgment of God. Verses 3 and 4 tells us how they, uh, verse 3 tells us how they tried to protect themselves and defend themselves. Tyre, uh, representing all the region, built herself a tight fortification. Tyre and Damascus and Hadrach and Hamath and Sidon, they, they they locked themselves down as secure as they could possibly make themselves. They built a high fence. They set watchmen. They set armies out there. And then they pursued wealth. They tied up silver like dust and fine gold like the mire of the streets. I, I've got no idea what it means to tie up silver like dust. What comes to mind is, is a vacuum bag that's full. They've got so much wealth that silver and gold are just like dust. To them and they think because of their wealth and because of their security <coughs> that they're immune and they they were from human invaders but not against not from the lord verse 4 says behold the lord will dispossess her and strike her wealth down into the sea and she will be consumed with fire strongly protected against human invaders but utterly vulnerable to the judgment of god then Zechariah turns his eyes to the south, to a different area that we would call Philistia or Canaan. It says in verse 5, Ashkelon, a city in Philistia, will see it, the judgment of the north, and be afraid. Gaza, too, will writhe in great pain. Gaza was a city in the south. Ekron was a city in the south, for her hope has been put to shame. Moreover, the king will perish from Gaza, and Ashkelon will, will not be inhabited, and those of illegitimate birth will inhabit Ashdod, another city in Philistia, and I will cut off the pride of the Philistines. So God begins, Zechariah 9 begins with this judgment against the Gentile peoples of the north, and then it con- continues with a judgment against the, the, the Gentile peoples in the south. But then it changes in verse 7. And I will remove their blood from their mouth and their detestable things from between their teeth. What that seems to be saying, according to the commentaries that I read, is God is going to remove your violence, the blood from your mouth. And he is going to remove their idolatry and their false worship, the detestable things from between their teeth, the unclean things that they eat and worship. Then they also will be a remnant for our God. It's a good thing to be a remnant. It's never a good thing to be the majority. There's a broad way that leads to destruction and a broad gate that leads to it. And there's a narrow gate and a narrow road that leads to life. It's always good to be the remnant. And they will be like a clan in Judah. 
the Philistines will actually be like a tribe of Israel. And Ekron, a city of Philistia, will be like a Jebusite. The Jebusites were a people that David conquered, and rather than destroying them, they were just kind of absorbed into Israel. They just became part of the covenant people. Being like a remnant for our God is a blessing. It means a remnant that Yahweh saves. Being like a clan in Judah means being a tribe of God. <coughs> so, like Syria, Philistia faces the judgment of God. Unlike Syria, Yahweh will preserve and bless a remnant of the Philistines as his own children. And then he promises to preserve his people. Verse 8, but I will camp around my house because of an army, because of him who passes by and returns, and no taskmaster will pass over them anymore, for now I have seen with my eyes. It appears that half of verse 8 has been fulfilled and half is not. It's thought that him who passes by and returns is a reference to Alexander the Great. When Alexander the Great conquered his world, he passed through Israel to defeat Egypt, and then once he had defeated Egypt, he passed through Israel, but he never never made war against Israel, and Israel suffered no harm from him. However, no taskmaster will pass over them anymore has not yet been fulfilled. Israel's had many taskmasters, and Jews continue to have many taskmasters. And then in verse 9 is the great promise. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Make a loud shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and endowed with salvation, lowly and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a pack animal. This is exactly what it's fulfilled in Matthew 21 and Mark 11 and Luke 19 with the triumphant entry. This actually happened. The king did go to them. He went to them in humility, mounted on a donkey, not a war horse. He did come with salvation. He came warning of judgment, but he came in righteousness and endowed with salvation. And in fact, there was loud shouting that day. This was literally fulfilled, truly fulfilled. Verse 10, though, has not yet taken place. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem, and the bow of war will be cut off, and he will speak peace to the nations. And his reign will be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. That has not yet taken place. So as people study, as we try to understand the end times, uh, which is the... The, the category of, of eschatology, the study of, of end time things. There's different views. I happen to be of the view that says every Old Testament prophecy will be fulfilled in history. In history. That just as surely as Jesus rode into Jerusalem, humble, mounted on a donkey, endowed with salvation, in righteousness, accompanied by the shouting of the people, that Jesus will speak peace to the nations, reign from sea to sea, and from the Euphrates to the ends of the earth. That both of those are literally true. One has taken place, one has not yet taken place. Other, that, that would be the, the view of, of premillennialism. 
the views of amillennialism and postmillennialism are that this is figurative. It's a figurative reign. That he's reigning now, amillennialism would say, well, that's now. Well, and the question I would ask is, did he really ride into Jerusalem humble and mounted on a donkey? And at what point then do you decide, this is real, this is historical, and this is figurative, and I don't know how to call it, spiritualized, analogized? I just believe that everything prophesied about Jesus will take place in history. It'll be measurable, it'll be actual, what it'll look like in the actual moment, I don't know, but Jesus really did ride in on a donkey you imagine all the people who are trying to figure out, so what's that mean? What, what does that mean he's going to ride in on? What's, what's that mean? And I wonder if anybody said, maybe he'll ride in on a donkey. Maybe it's actually simple. He goes on to say, as for you also because of the blood of your covenant, I have set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. And I think he's probably making a reference to the blood of the covenant with Abraham. Which is not a correct way of putting it. It's called the Abrahamic covenant, but that implies that Abraham is a covenant partner with Yahweh, and he's not. The people of Israel were covenant partners with God in the Mosaic covenant. God said to them, you do this and I'll do this. It's a mutual agreement. With the covenant with Abraham, Abraham took the animals, killed them, divided them, and then Abraham went to sleep. And the terror of the presence of God fell upon him, and God alone passed through. God alone made a covenant with himself. And Abraham then just had to say, I believe it. And then he was a party to that covenant, or a beneficiary of the covenant, not a party to it. This is a co the covenant with Abraham. I have set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to the stronghold, O prisoners who have the hope. This very day I am declaring to you, declaring that I will return double to you. This has not yet happened. For I will bend Judah as my bow. I love this picture. I will bend Judah as my bow. I will fill the bow with Ephraim. Judah is the bow. Ephraim is the arrow. And I will rouse up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and I will make you like a mighty man's sword. There's a possibility that was fulfilled with the Maccabees when they threw the Greeks out. But this has not been fulfilled. Then Yahweh will appear over them, and his arrow will go forth like lightning, and Lord Yahweh will blow the trumpet and will go in the storm winds of the south. Yahweh of hosts will defend them, and they will consume and trample on the stones of a sling, that is, the weapons of war will be shattered to dust and they'll walk on them. And they will consume, uh, I'm sorry, they will drink and roar as with wine, and they will be filled like a sacrificial bowl, drenched like the corners of the altar. And Yahweh their God will save them in that day as the flock of his people, for they are the, as the stones of a crown sparkling in the land. That God takes and makes of a crown of glory for himself. But then verse 17, for what goodness and what beauty will be theirs? Grain will make the choice men flourish and new wine the virgins. Zechariah 9.9 has been fulfilled and perhaps some other elements have, but other elements have not yet been fulfilled. 
And there are people who say, but that doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense if 9 was fulfilled and 10, was, 10 wasn't fulfilled. It makes perfect sense. We see it all the time where the Lord fulfills part, but not the rest, not yet. The prophecies of God are specific and literal. So we, we can't say that 9-9 nine, nine was fulfilled in history, but the rest of the promises are just ideas. The day is coming when Yahweh will bring true peace to Jerusalem, speak peace to the nation, and Jesus will reign over the whole earth. That's what scripture says. What we have to be aware of is pronouncing a fulfillment. You know, nobody was sitting there on the stones outside the temple waiting for Jesus. Nobody said he's coming. It'll be today. Just waiting. Nobody did that. He came in in order to fulfill. It doesn't even say, as it does sometimes, this was done to fulfill and his disciples remembered later. It doesn't even say that. It appears that this was revealed to them maybe by Jesus after his resurrection, maybe by the Holy Spirit later on. This was a fulfillment. Look at that. That's what happened. So until these things in Isaiah 62 and Zechariah 9 and other places, until they're actually fulfilled and the Spirit opens eyes, we won't see that. We won't be able to say this is exactly what it looks like. But that doesn't mean it won't take place in history. It simply means we can't yet define it. Thinking back to the triumphant entry, we could wish that the people of Israel had kept up with the praises, that when Jesus rode in, they had believed in him. But that wasn't the purpose of God. That wasn't the purpose of God. <coughs> Jesus at one point says to the Pharisees, it's, it's your ancestors who put the prophets to death. Israel had had Moses. And then they had the judges. And then they had kings. And then they had prophets. And still they turned to idols. Still they were unfaithful. During that time of their history, going back to, to beginning with Abraham, uh, 2600 BC, perhaps, you, you see that they had Abraham and that promised. Then they had, uh, beginning around 1800, they had Moses. Well, 14, 1500, they had Moses. 400 years of judges, so you've got a prophet in Moses. And Aaron, then you have judges who are sent by God to deliver the people. Then you have kings raised up by God. So you have a, a history of 800 or 1,000 or 1,200 or 1,500 years with God speaking to them through various ways, as Hebrews 1 says. And they, they just continued to throw themselves into idolatry. They've only got about 400 years without anybody between Malachi and, and the coming of Christ. Most of their history, they had somebody and it didn't matter. And when they reject Christ, the Lord, it says in, in Romans 11, cuts them off from Abraham. And he grafts us, the Gentiles, in. And the promise is that when the time of Gentiles is fulfilled, he will graft Israel back in. And I believe that he will do exactly that thing. They will be restored to their God and their Savior. Not through the law of Moses. Not through the judges and the kings and the prophets, but through Christ. Who is the judge? Who is the king? Who is the prophet? 
So we could wish that they had received him, but because they didn't, we were grafted in. Uh, in, in 30 years of ministry, probably the most common question I'm asked are we in the, the end times. I get it at least once a year in every church I've ever been in. And the answer is, well, yeah, of course we are. Hebrews and First Peter say that we're in the end times. We can also see the, the times becoming more and more and more chaotic in our country. And if the Lord doesn't do something to stop it, I think he's got to return. Or we will simply fall under the hand of God in judgment. But we have the promise that he is not giving up. He is not abandoning his people. He's not abandoning Israel. He's not abandoning the Gentiles. What we see in Matthew 21 is not the end. It's the beginning. The beginning of the end is not the beginning of the end of Jesus' life although you could take it that way for this final week, it's the beginning of the end times. The end times are really inaugurated when their king comes riding in to Jerusalem, humble and mounted on a donkey. What they couldn't contemplate is how long it would take. I think Jews in Jesus' time would have said when the, when the Messiah arrives, the afflictions will be over. In, in reality, when the Messiah arrived, their afflictions were just beginning. God is doing a new thing that he hadn't done until Jesus died and rose again. God is doing a last thing in bringing everything together. In Ephesians 1, 9 to 10, there's this phrase that, the Father is making known to us the mystery of his will according to the good pleasure which he purposed in Christ for an administration for the fullness of times, which is like an administration for the fullness of times. What does that mean? Well, the fullness of times means the completion of everything, right? The word administration is a way of describing things that are put in order or sorted properly or established or fixed in place. To administrate means to set an order. So the administration of the fullness of times is nothing more. It sounds so simple, nothing more. It's nothing more than Yahweh's comprehensive plan to sum up everything in heaven and on earth in Christ. And when he has done that, when everything has been subjected to God, 1 Corinthians 15 says, then the Son will present it all to God. When everything has been established and administrated in that way, then we can get on to the next thing. And that's what the Lord is doing today. As we move towards the Lord's table this morning, we have this reminder that Jesus died in history. And he rose in history. His blood was shed in history. Our salvation was accomplished in history. He is saving you and I in history. He brought us to him at a moment that he knows. Perhaps you know the moment. Perhaps you don't know the moment. But he knows the moment. And he is at work in your life, in the history of your life, bringing you into conformity with the image 
of his son, and he won't stop until that's been accomplished. He will continue to do it with others until the fullness of time has been reached, and it's time for the next thing. We can trust that he's going to do that. Father, we thank you for your love for us, your kindness to us, your graciousness to us. <coughs> Just as surely as Jesus entered the city in humility, riding on a, a beast of burden, a few days later he took bread and he blessed it and he broke it and he gave it to his disciples and said, take and eat, this is my body. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. All of the events that we see in Scripture, Lord, are historical. They took place just as we read. And Jesus' body was truly given, and his blood was truly shed. Jesus went on that night, Matthew writes, But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So sharing in the Lord's table, Lord, lets us look back in history 2,000 years. And it looks, lets us look forward in history to a date that we don't know. Could be another 2,000 years. It could be tonight. We don't know. But we are anchored at two points of history. <clears throat> the point at which our Savior gave his life for us. And the point at which he takes us to himself all at once. And together with him, perhaps we, we share in the last remembrance of his death and resurrection or perhaps the first meal of an eternal age would you allow us now to recognize as we pause the historical reality of our savior's death and resurrection perfectly accomplishing our salvation in truth. <clears throat>